Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 80. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Christina. Howdy, Dr. Woolman. How are you today? Oh, fun. (laughs) (laughs) Just the season. Just the season. That's the title of our show today, Season of the Witch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. I know. Greetings, everyone. (laughs) Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we search yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in view and in search of optimal health. Mm -hmm. So um, if any of you uh, are listening live or watching live, um, anytime during this presentation of Dr. Glenn Wolman's, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment just by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Uh, be sure to click submit so I can share that with Dr. Wolman. And if you prefer, you are very welcome to join us and dial into our conference line at 323 476 3997. Your ID is 607-393-POUND. If that went by a little fast, not to worry, it will show up on your screen during the show. Okay, Dr. Woolman. Well, there you go. We are ready. We are ready. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today uh, I decided uh, to be a little bit seasonal, and I did a little bit of a play on words calling it the season of the witch because I wanted to uh, talk about some health problems that happen during this season. And one of the health problems uh, is involved in Halloween. Mm-hmm. And we, so we will talk about that. But I also uh, wanted to talk about the fact that, you know, everybody says that uh, California doesn't have any seasons, but we do. We have the flu season. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's coming up. Uh, it starts, it's variable as to when the flu season starts, but sometimes it happens as early as October, mm-hmm. and sometimes it goes as late as May. So somewhere between October and May is our flu season. And at this point in time, we're bombarded with everybody getting the flu shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody talks about, getting the flu shot. So today I wanted to talk about... Um, in terms of the which, it's which path should you take? Because there are many people that go out and religiously get their flu shot every year, if you're in the right criteria. And there's some people that aren't sure each year. And then there are some people that absolutely refuse to get it for various reasons. But it's basically you have to make that choice each year. So it's which path are you going to take? Mm. The path of the flu? Or the path of the vaccination. Hmm. Now, now, um, Glenn, is it because of the change in weather that it tends to be more like abrupt at this time of the year? Yes, it's that plus the way the viruses and their vectors move around the world. Hmm. But it is, you know, it's partly the change of the weather. And remember that what I'm speaking about now has to do with the northern hemisphere. And uh in particular, the United States, not necessarily uh, the Southern Hemisphere. So we're talking about the flu season for us. It's a different time for uh, people below the equator in uh, the Southern Hemisphere. Mm, So I just want to mention that in episode 65, I think another episode inside the doctor's bag, we went into some lengthy discussions about viruses, and I would recommend that everybody Uh, go back and look at that episode to learn a little more about viruses. And I'm not going to focus on viruses today, although they're they're little particles. Some people consider them to be alive because they have certain qualities that uh, have aliveness to them. And some people do not consider them living organisms because of things that they don't do. But whatever it is, check out episode 65 and that'll help you there. Uh, But today we're going to talk a little more about the flu and the vaccination and which choice you should make for yourself and family members. So we have to understand that flu 
or the influenza virus. It's a, it's a very serious disease that has the capability of leading to a hospitalization and sometimes even death. In um, 31 years or 31 flu seasons between 1976 and approximately 2007, the estimations of flu-associated deaths, the low in the United States we're talking about, the low was around 3,000 and the high was somewhere around 49,000 people died of Mm. flus. So this is not something that we can ignore. It's out there and it does happen. And that's what people have to realize. So, but it doesn't happen to everyone. Mm -hmm. Not everybody dies. Clearly some people don't get the flu and some people uh, will get various versions of it. Now the the people, I mean, those statistics are, I mean, that's quite a good number. (laughs) It's quite a high number. number, And it's an important number. I think that, you know, we have to think about this in our choices Uh, There are a lot of people that are very fearful of the vaccine for various reasons, what it has in it. And we might talk a little bit about that, uh, how it's manufactured and uh, and what it represents. But we have to realize that the flu itself, the the flu influenza virus, and there are many types of them, uh, they can be just as dangerous. And if you looked Mm -hmm. at it from a point of view of you have one of two choices, either take the, take the flu or take the vaccine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that, that's, a, I think, a good way to look at it. Now, you may, everything is about risk-benefit ratio, so that's what people have to think about. But let's, st- let's start with uh, talking about the, the vaccine itself. How do we determine what vaccine to make, because we know viruses mutate and they change. So the vaccine that was used in uh, 1994 would not be that effective uh, for 2013 and 2014, because viruses through their genetics can mutate. So what happens is that there's at least 100 different facilities in 100 different countries around the world that are doing research all the time on the influenza virus. They're doing research on other viruses too, but they're doing research on the influenza virus. And usually there are two types of influenza viruses. There are type A viruses and type B viruses. And we won't get into that right now, just to know that there are usually two types of viruses. And these hundred or more facilities around the world are doing research and uh, epidemiological studies, viral studies, and incidents and relations to everything that might be happening related to the virus. And in February of each year, the World Health Organization gets together. There's uh, approximately five uh, centers around the world. We have our center in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. There's a center in London in the United Kingdom, center in, I believe it's Melbourne in Australia, Tokyo in Japan, and Beijing in China. Uh, And these World Health Organizations gather all of the information, and then they make their recommendations to the companies that manufacture flu vaccines, and they work with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and they try and develop a vaccine for this specific season. In the past, uh, we had what we called a trivalent vaccine. So in other words, tri is three. uh, And what they did is they believed that there were two types of A-viruses and one type of a B virus that they would be, they believe would be the most representative of what the influenza virus would be for this year. So they make the vaccine uh, compatible with those three viruses. This year, it's changed a little bit, and they have, and you'll be hearing these words, or maybe not, but there's now a quadrivalent virus, which is Uh, that they looked at the research this year, and in February, they felt that it would be a a much more complete vaccination or vaccine, and 
much more effective if they included not only the two A viruses and the one B virus, but they saw another B virus out there. So they decided to put that into the into the vaccine itself. So this year, you'll be hearing about choices of a trivalent and a quadrivalent uh, vaccine. And the way it works is that they take the virus and do one of a few things to it. And you you will hear these different words. You will hear the something that's called an inactivated virus. And that means they take the virus in the lab and they kill it. So it, it has no real viral activity, but it still has all of its proteins and antigens, uh, which are the things that help the immune system create antibodies. So the virus is killed and it's put into this vat, so to speak, with all sorts of other preservatives and other uh, compounds to produce a vaccine that when injected into the human, it should uh, invoke the immune system to develop antibodies. And the hope is that the all of the countries got it right and the World Health Organization got it right. And these are the uh, primary viruses that uh, people will get this year when they're getting the influenza. And its hope is that, that it will prevent uh, people from getting it. So this is the concept here. And this, this year they've developed, like I said, the quad, quadrivalent. But most people will be getting the trivalent vaccine. Uh, so do you have any questions about that so far? Yeah, does it? Um, so he, here are all these uh, points all over the globe, all these mm-hmm. organizations. Mm-hmm. So they're gathering information within their own area, right? In Correct. their own demographics. Correct. And then they gather together to create or, or be more specific. Bringing the data. Bringing the data together. Now, mm-hmm. The vaccinations, the serums, so to say, mm-hmm. right? I am assuming because every country is going to be different and because of the demographics and because of the information gathered that the different vaccinations will be different in each country? No, not really. It's the, the virus is the same. Hmm. So the vaccination that's produced could be the same vaccination that's given in another country. Uh, now, there may be other viruses in other countries that will require other things. But this is also an important point to think about in the sense that many people, one of the arguments about the vaccination that you hear is, oh, I took the vaccination and I still got the flu. Mm. So that is a possibility, but most likely they didn't get the influenza type of flu. There are other viruses out there that are not influenza viruses. There are the cold viruses. I mean, you yourself know that some people can get a cold and be out for two or three days with just a runny nose and a sore throat, and then you're better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's caused by a virus. But then everybody knows when they have the flu, they get that those body aches where parts of your body, like your hair, (laughs) hurt, your fingernails (laughs) hurt, your muscles ache, you have fevers, and you're really down. And you're out for at least a week, sometimes two weeks or something like that. That's very different than the uh, what we call the rhinoviruses or some of the more simple viruses that people can get. You know, just simply people can get a viral gastroenteritis for three days, have nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps, diarrhea, and then be better. That's still a virus, but it's not the influenza virus. So most likely, and in most of the cases, when uh, people take the flu shot, and if they get sick, yes, it's true that some may get the virus, the influenza virus, but it's also true that some people may get another type of virus and claim that it was the influenza virus. And the only way you Mm. can really test that is by actually testing it, going to a laboratory, uh, testing either blood or sputum or secretions and see if you have that influenza virus. And Mm. most of the time, It really isn't. So that's one of the things. We talked about the uh, inactivated virus. You'll also hear some 
some other terms. And I just want to familiarize people so that when you make your choice with your doctor and your family as to whether or not to get the shot, um, you may ask about some of these things to have an in-depth discussion with your doctor. They also have another type of vaccination that they call it a live attenuated virus. So this is the same virus, but instead of the inactivated where they kill the virus, what they do with the live attenuated virus is they weaken it with chemicals or with cold or with a number of different methods. So it's still a live virus, but it's so weakened that it won't be able to give you the flu. Now, there are some complications with that, as there are with everything. Sometimes that virus, because it's still alive, has the ability to mutate. And while it mutates, it can then mutate into something that can cause you to have a sickness. So in, in that respect, we still have to make the decision at the time of the season of the virus whether or not to get it. So the companies produce this virus and they put it out there and they, you know, sometimes there's not enough. When people suddenly hear that uh, there's not enough of a vaccine, then more people start panicking. Most of the time people today uh, just think, oh, I may or may not take it. But if they hear that there's only a limited amount and they hear that it's a bad season, you see a lot of people rushing to uh, find, you know, where they can get that uh, virus vaccine. So who should uh, take the virus vaccine? That's, that's the real question. And for the CDC, what they recommend is essentially the big picture is everyone should take the, the vaccine if you are older than six months of age. That's what the CDC recommends, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. They recommend everyone older than six months. But there are a couple of exceptions to that. But first, there are also other people uh, that should take it. And the, the reason that some people should take it is <clears throat> you worry about if somebody gets the vaccine, not the vaccine, excuse me, if somebody gets the virus, whether their immune system is capable of dealing with it and what else they have in their body that could be hurt by the virus. So as you're making your decision as to whether or not to take the vaccine, um, I'm assuming you're a person that could make the decision. Clearly, if you're six months old, someone else is making the decision for you. But you have to look at what are the risks of complications that concur if you don't take the vaccine and you decide to take the virus itself. And these could be anything from, as we said before, you get fevers, uh, sore throat, you can get lung complications, respiratory complications, uh, you can get uh, neurological complications, gastrointestinal complications, number of complications that you can get from this. So if you're at increased risk, meaning you have certain problems, you have uh, a history of asthma, you have a history of lots of pneumonias, you have a history of a, a bad liver disease or uh, diabetes, metabolic problems, uh, chronic conditions of the kidneys, uh, chronic neurological conditions. All of these things mean that you're already having issues when it's a healthy season. So if you get the flu and your body is already compromised, it can cause much more damage, which can, which can be complications, which some of them will certainly be, you'll be okay, you may get a bad cold, and then you get better. But you may go into a pneumonia, you may go into kidney failure, and in these cases, you may end up in an emergency department or a hospital. And again, you may end up, uh, depending on your immune system and what your body is like in general, death is certainly one of the complications that occurs from this. So we talked about that. People have uh, choices to make, and there are multiple vaccines that are out there. As I said, there's the trivalent and there's the quadrivalent vaccine. Most likely this year, people will uh, 
have more ability to get the trivalent. There's only going to be maybe 30 to 40 million out of the maybe 140 million vaccines. Uh, maybe 30 million of them will be the quadrivalent. So if you really want the quadrivalent and you talk about it with your doctor, you may have to find out specifically where you can get that. Uh, but most likely you'll get the uh, trivalent. There are also people that can, there's a nasal spray and there's a intradermal injection rather than the normal intramuscular. Most of the time people of adult age or older children will get the shot, the vaccination in their upper deltoid region of the shoulder. Uh, little children around the six months age will probably get the shot somewhere in their thigh in the anterior and lateral aspect of the thigh. But there are also nasal uh, sprays and there's an intradermal spray, uh, not a spray, an intradermal injection. And these are different choices. And some of these choices are already made for you for certain things. You can't be a certain age and have the intranasal or the intradermal and they, and your doctor will be able to go over that with you. But also the people that should get this. So we talked about age six months up through your entire adulthood, and you should get it every year. But there are some people that specifically should get it. And these are people that uh, are usually immunosuppressed, someone that may have uh, the human immune deficiency virus, AIDS as we call it, uh, cardiovascular disease, renal disease, neurological disease, uh, blood diseases, etc. Also, people that uh, are pregnant should should get this, or women that are planning on being pregnant during the flu season, and that's another thing that you need to talk about with your doctor. Uh, the American Indian and the Alaskan Eskimo also. Uh, for some reason, they're much more susceptible to the flu, so that it's recommended that they get the shot. And then there's there's another group of people, healthcare workers, because they're taking care of people, uh, they need to consider getting the shot because you number one, you don't want to catch it from one of your patients where you're exposed, but number two. Uh, you also don't want to give it to one of your patients. And this is another part of the interesting decision-making that a lot of people don't talk about. We talk about healthcare workers and caregivers. If you're caring for elderly people that might uh, be very fragile, certainly important for them to get it, but especially if they can't get the shot. If you're caring for someone who's a four-month-old who's too young for the shot, and it's really important to consider that you don't want to give them the influenza virus. So healthcare workers and caregivers need to be very cognizant of uh, the risks and benefits. And this brings up the other part of the decision-making, which I like to talk about. They usually, in, in the science world, refer to it as the herd type of mentality, H-E-R-D, not H-E-A-R-D. But the concept there is that if everyone in the herd, uh, and I call it the humanity, if everyone in humanity uh, takes the shot, then there's going to be a decrease in the opportunity to pass it on to someone else, where if you look at it completely the opposite way and say no one's going to take the shot, that certainly increases the chances that the virus will spread. We know how it spreads. We know it usually spreads through coughing or sneezing, droplets in the air. It, it can be spread through talking, and it could be uh, you know, spread through touching things where the virus is. And we could talk in a little while about how to possibly prevent it. But there are do you have any questions before I move forward into who shouldn't get the shot? Well, I have a question of about nursing mothers, mm -hmm. because I, I just heard you say, you know, anyone who's looking after a child that might be four months and younger, like a caregiver or a mom, uh, if they're nursing, will it affect the child? You know, it's a good question, and I would, I would hesitate to totally answer. My quick answer is that it will be okay. Mm-hmm. It will be okay, but I would have to do research on that and, and uh, get back to all of our listeners for that specific question. But it's certainly a question that the uh, 
the obstetrician will probably know and the pediatrician will know instantly. It's just, again, this is not my field. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to give lots of data, but that's a very good question. My initial response would be it's safe. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think because if you're saying uh, uh, pregnant moms, it's safe for pregnant moms. Mm-hmm. Uh, my assumption right. was, oh, then if you're nursing, it's still fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> the baby's out, but you're still, you know, nursing the baby. But who, I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> I thought I'd better ask. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, so the people that shouldn't take the injection mm. or the vaccination, uh, there's a whole group of these people. One is if you're under six months of age, you shouldn't take the vaccination. Uh, people that have specific allergies to uh, egg, for example, uh, because part of the process of making the vaccine is to create the vaccine in an egg media. Uh, so this is a question that we always have to ask, and this is obviously uh, one of the ways that some people that do not want to take the vaccine and their offices or businesses or hospitals uh, are demanding it or it's mandatory in certain hospitals. It's not a state or federal mandate yet, although that may come down the line at some point. But many hospitals and uh, in the country decide that they want all of their employees to have this. They And they say it's going to be required. They certainly give one or two uh, other choices. They could say, you don't come to work, or they can say, uh, you wear a mask all the time while you're at work. But uh, so some of the people that are trying to get out of taking the shot where it's required at work will claim that they have an egg allergy. And certainly that can be used at times, but you'd have to really determine whether this allergy was a mild or a severe allergy. People with a mild egg allergy that really want to take the flu vaccine can take it, have the discussion with your doctor, and there could be some special precautions made. Maybe you would want to take some Benadryl or an antihistamine and be a little more careful for a while and talk with your doctor. Other people that uh, should not take it are people that have a syndrome called or had a syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And this is a syndrome that has been actually related sometimes to uh, the injections, uh, but it's it's a syndrome caused by a virus that works on the nervous system and then consequently works on the muscular system. So it's usually, it's an ascending virus. Sometimes when I say ascending, it starts lower down in the legs and works its way up the body. And when it works its way up to the diaphragm as a muscle, then the body stops breathing, and this can cause death. And we see, pe- we see people with uh, various uh, degrees of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Most people, when we recognize it, we can get them through that, and when the virus is over, they'll be okay. But if they're not in a place where they can be recognized with that uh, possibility of death. So when people have a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, most doctors will recommend that they not receive the flu vaccine. Other people, and this is an interesting question that people ask, what if I, what if I don't feel well uh, or if I'm sick at the time that I want to get my flu shot? Well, they break it down and say, if you're sick mildly, where you have that runny nose, you just feel a little bit run down, but you still go to work, you still feel fine enough to go out and play a little ball or uh, do some things, go to a movie, then you're probably still okay to get the vaccination. If you're moderately sick uh, or severely sick, uh, with or without a fever, then at that point, uh, most doctors recommend that you don't take the flu shot at that time and you wait a while and then you um, then you take the flu shot. People with histories of asthma should not should be very careful. Uh, most of the time, we recommend that they do take the flu shot, but if they're having uh, an attack at the time, then you need to uh, make a decision to wait until that is over with. So do you have any questions so far? Well, well, okay, so I just wanted to reiterate what you just said. So if someone already has 
some symptoms of the flu, they should not take the flu shot? Is that what I understand? Again, we're talking about the influenza virus versus Mm -hmm. uh, a cold virus. Right. That's one thing. If somebody has mild symptoms of what they're not sure, whether it's the influenza virus at that time or uh, a mild cold, Mm -hmm. they can still take the shot. My recommendation would probably be to wait until you feel a little better. Mm -hmm. That would be mine as a medical guide. And I want to add that as a medical guide, I try to help people make the decision based not necessarily on the CDC uh, and the World Health Organization. I use that as part of it, but I also work with each individual and try and figure out what is best for them. If, for example, they're extremely healthy with a great immune system and they know that they're going to be on an island by themselves without seeing anyone through the entire flu season, that person may not need the vaccine because they're not going to be exposed. But on the other hand, I work with people that, you know, have certain problems or on medications and need to be protected from the possibility of the complications of the flu. In other words, we have to determine whether their immune system is capable of dealing with that virus and are they going to come out of it? Mm. So it's it's very important and it's very tricky to figure it all out for each specific person. And, I, and I'll also say that I work with a lot of scientific people that take this decision-making on another level. They're, they're not basing it always on the scientific level, but they're basing it on um, the intuitive level where a lot of energy-type workers that go into themselves and have their own intuition and feel their own energy, have a sense sometimes that the flu shot is good for them and they take it. But there's a group of people that from an energetic point of view and hearing certain things from the public about the dangers of the shot uh, may choose not to take it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there's no one answer for everything. That's why it's the decision about uh, what you're, which path to take. And the the interesting thing is that both paths have merit and they need to be thought of wisely. There are complications of the, sh- of the flu shot itself. Most of the time, most of the complications uh, don't exist. Most people that get the flu shot don't have any reaction to it. Mm. Most people. There are people And I don't want to give statistical numbers. We can go out and look at those or anybody can go to a a website and find that out. But sometimes there are the mild and temporary complications. And these include pain and redness and some swelling right at the injection site. Occasionally, people get some headaches or muscle aches, a little fever, and just feel kind of tired. Those are the mild to mild problems the then there are moderate problems that people have and the moderate problems are more like a general illness you know where you're really weak and you have the things that i said the high fevers up into the 103 104 real malaise where you don't want to get out of bed body aches everywhere you have fevers and chills you'll rotate between fevers and chills where your entire body is shaking and your teeth are uh, chattering in your mouth uh, and everything hurts. Uh, so those are moderate complications. And then there's, of course, the severe complications where uh, people that are immune compromised or that get a severe pneumonia, they can get a brain or a neurological inflammation, kidney inflammations and infections, and uh, including death. And so when you make your decision about what to do, whether or not to take the shot, take the vaccine, you have to really put it in the perspective of, do I want to take the vaccine as something that's going to help me protect me from the flu, or do I want to take the other? If you imagine that the other choice was that we bottled up the actual flu virus and gave that to everyone, <laughs> which, which one would you rather take? And in a sense, what's happening is the flu virus is out there. 
the influenza virus is out there. So if you walk down a corridor uh, in a schoolroom where there are lots of kids and they're all coughing, that's essentially potentially volunteering to take the the vaccination, which would be the virus itself. And I'm making that up, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's not a vaccination. But that that's the way it needs to be looked at because it is out there. It is real. And it causes complications. And those complications for uh, certain people can be death. For other people, it could be a mild uh, problem. So what are the some of the things that we can also do to uh, protect ourselves? Well, the first thing, according to the CDC, to protect yourself from the flu is, and I will repeat this, get the vaccination. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the first way to protect yourself. Second, the second is understanding a little bit of a, about how it spreads. It can be up to six feet away. Uh, people cough or sneeze or talk, uh, touching surfaces, things like that. So being away from people that are coughing and sick, being conscious of things like that. Also, if you start feeling sick, then you should stop going around other people in case you're going to spread something to other people. Hand washing certainly is important. And if you're taking care of a child or if you're taking care of anyone, washing their linens, their eating utensils and their dishes and making sure that other people uh, don't get affected or infected from it. So usually, and these are questions that people want to ask most of the time, uh, the people get infected. Usually you can infect other people a day before you develop symptoms in yourself and you can infect people up to five to seven days, uh, maybe a week after you become sick. So that's a question that people always ask. Oh, I'm not infectious anymore. I've already had it for two days or something like that. It can be up to seven days. And again, you know, when we say seven days, that's not for everybody. It could be eight or nine days and kids actually uh, can, can go up to two weeks of being infectious giving it to someone else. The symptoms may start about one to four days after the virus enters your body. And it usually enters through the nose, the mouth, or the eyes. You shake hands with someone who just coughed in their hand, and then you rub your eye or put your hand to your mouth. Uh, You have a very good chance of uh, getting that. Some people may actually get the influenza virus and not really have symptoms. Uh, but this time, they still may be able to spread the virus to other people. So I think that from my point of view right now, that's pretty much what I want to say in terms of people making a decision about whether or not to get the flu or to get the vaccination. And it's something that everybody should talk to with their doctor to make a conscious decision for themselves and for their family. Um, Glenn, out of the statistics that you'd given in the beginning, you know, with the high number of uh, deaths that has Mm -hmm. occurred from uh, influenza, um, is there also a breakdown of those deaths? Like were some because they had, uh, you know, immune autoimmune deficiency, or if they had some health issues that you may have listed earlier. Um, I mean, how many of those deaths were healthy individuals? Uh, to begin certainly, with? certainly, number one, there are statistics. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, I don't want to go through them, nor do I have all of them, the total breakdowns. Most of the time, the people that do get sick and die are usually uh, the ones that are compromised in some way, or over 65. Mm. That's mm. what we see. Uh, you know, a normal person from 12 to 15 to age 49 or 50, uh, most of the time, in the majority of cases, they will feel miserable and get better, and then it will be a story mm. that, that they could tell other people. And uh, But for the most part, the people that do die have some kind of a complication already are not as healthy as they could be, or they're more in the elderly uh, realm of life. Mm-hmm. So now, now um, I've heard, you know, through my life, 
Well, it's, it's, it's good to get sick now and then because you're building your immune system. <laughs> so, so then I take it to, all right, if we choose to go with the vaccination, of course, that vaccination is to help us build the immune system, our immune system towards those viruses. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were to go the route of the possibility of catching the virus, if we do catch the virus, again, it's going to build the immune system towards that virus. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is that is that bogus in a way? Is one better than the other? Is one more powerful than the other? Well, it's a very good question. Both of them will develop immunities, hopefully, assuming you do have a uh, an effective immune system. If you have a compromised immune system, then there's no question that the better way is through the vaccination. If you have mm-hmm. an uncompromised immune system, then you could take your chances and the risk of getting it, and you will probably have a miserable two weeks and then be better. The thing that we talked about at the very beginning and also <clears throat> in the other episode was that the virus itself mutates. So even if you develop the antibodies antibodies this year, uh, that may work possibly for next year, depending on what the World Health Organization says is coming along. But three years from now, it may not work. And it's, again, the same with the flu vaccine. That's why they recommend that everybody get the vaccine every year. Mm-hmm. But it is a good question. But the, the real question becomes... Uh, to always <clears throat> look at, excuse me for one moment, to always look at the, the risk-benefit ratio, mm-hmm. and that's, that's where this, the decision comes in. If you're very healthy and you're not too worried about it and you're willing to accept the fact that you're probably going to get sick, and if you do get sick, you are going to get better and you're not going to have complications, and you can go that route. Mm-hmm. If, but you have your best chance, assuming that you're going to live life and be among people, mm-hmm. you have your best chance uh, with the vaccination. It, it adds to your chances of doing better and having less problems. Okay. Um, now, what about, uh, you know, the prevention, like the preventative measures of washing hands and staying away from people who might be sneezing or coughing? <laughs> Good yes, load of so, chance I have on that one when I'm working with 60 kids in the morning. <laughs> well, that, that's even more important to be aware of that. And you have to do things. I personally uh, do a lot of hand washing and stay away from people. And when I recognize that somebody's coughing or sneezing or something like that, mm-hmm. I'll turn my head away and and uh, not try to inhale for a few seconds and move away. And then if I know that I've had a high exposure during the day, say I was in the emergency department or I was with someone that did have the flu, I'll come home uh, and that night I'll do a neti pot or a nasal wash to mm-hmm. really make sure that I try my best to to uh, prevent the virus from inoculating me and then expanding. Also, being as healthy as possible at all times mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. extremely important. You know, eating as we talk about, eat the right foods, uh, exercise, be in good health, have your spirituality, have your meditations. Um, don't be too stressed. Learn ways to deal with stress. Get plenty of, of sleep. But the hand washing is also very important. And sometimes if I know that I was just exposed to somebody that just coughed in my face um, and I have the opportunity to go to a bathroom somewhere and quickly just wash my face, uh, I will do that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll try and do anything possible not to get the flu. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what, um, how about your thoughts on, you know, when we have the children, um, and adults too, actually, you know, telling them instead of coughing in their hands, but to cough into like their arm or their sleeve or, or something like that, their elbow, um, does, uh, of course, if it's, damn <laughs> and the next child comes along and grabs that elbow yeah i think the the coughing into the elbow is a great way of cutting back the percentage of transmission mm-hmm. because very few people unless people are doing elbow bumps <laughs> you know i know we're doing high fives and fist bumps and everything else but if most people 
that greet each other shake hands. Mm-hmm. And if you have the virus on your hand, then you've passed it on. Right. And the other problem with that is, again, when I spoke of that earlier, I did mention that people will be infectious a day before, or at least a day before they actually know they have the problem. Mm-hmm. So you could be exposed to someone in about three to four or five days, you start getting uh the infection starts happening, but it's just before you've gotten one bit of the runny nose or the slight headache or the fever. And then uh, you're out there with other people and you're spreading the virus. Uh, What do you think of of what they do in Asia where, well, some other parts of the world too, I'm sure, where they wear those face masks, like when they're on public transport? I mean, everyone just wears little face masks if they're ill or not well. I think I think it's one of the more civilized things that uh, certain cultures do. I think we should all do that. It's an honoring of other people. It's part of that herd or humanity mentality. Mm-hmm. It does help. It's not necessarily uh, perfect because uh, in some cases the virus c- can get through. They're much smaller than the openings within a mask, but. They they have some protective device, and they also suggest just even the simple, if you're going to cough, cough into a tissue or cough into a handkerchief, and that may prevent some of the droplets that you're spreading out into uh, the atmosphere from spreading. So I think it's important from a humanity point of view for us to do everything we can to help the rest of us in our humanity to not get sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, uh, the antibacterial wipes and solutions, any thoughts Uh, on that? Yes, I'm sort of against them uh, most of the time because, first of all, the anti, just the word bacteria, is different than a virus. So if something is antibacterial, it isn't necessarily antiviral. And there are certain bacteria that we've spoken of in the past that are on the skin and many parts of the body that are protective bacteria. You know, we always talk about the bacteria in the gut that are so protective and part of our immune system. Mm -hmm. And we're all eating probiotics and and things like that for the protective bacteria. There are bacteria on the surface of the skin that are protective bacteria. So when people using antibacterial hand soaps uh, just in general... They're wiping out that part of their immune system. I suggest uh, soap and water. If you can't get soap and water, some kind of an alcohol-based cleanser Hmm. would probably be better for, in my mind, than a uh, antibacterial. Uh, Maybe uh, we can invent some kind of an antiviral Kleenex that uh, people could start using. (laughs) <laughs> little alcohol in your Kleenex. <laughs> oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> it's I think, the wet, the wet Kleenexes. <laughs> I, th- I think people have done that in the past. Uh, yeah, it's something I, like that, something of the sort. I do believe. <laughs> I think people have done that in the past. So, all in all, you know, we also talk about people talk about oh, the vaccines are dangerous because they have mercury in them, and they have uh, all sorts of. Uh, other, they have preservatives in them. And these, these are true, although I will say now that the vaccines that most people are getting in the single vial doses do not have mercury in them anymore. And it's the multivial doses. And it's interesting why the mercury is in there. Most people just think, oh, it's because the drug companies, you know, want to put mercury in all of our bloodstreams. It's not really, <laughs> for that. it's not really for that. It's, to prevent contamination, because one of the complications of a vaccination is a contaminated batch of of the uh, vaccine itself. They get contaminated with a bacteria, or they could get contaminated with a different virus of sorts. That can be very dangerous for people, and that's where some of the problems occur. So uh, there was mercury, the thimerosal. Uh, was in them. It's still in the multivial doses. You can speak with your doctor about that. Uh, If you're worried about something for your children uh, and yourself, you can certainly request 
a vaccine that does not have mercury in it. There are some other preservatives in it, but these are things because we have to realize there is a logistical concept that goes on. If somebody makes the vaccine in, uh, let's say they make it in Atlanta, Georgia, and you live in California, how does that vaccine get from Atlanta to your doctor's office or your pharmacy where you can get your flu shot? In order to do that, it has to be transported. And in order to be transported, you have to make sure that the vaccine is still viable and still strong enough to work and doesn't get contaminated. So there are things that they put into the uh, vaccine itself that allow it to go from Georgia to Washington State or to Ohio so that it, it can still be effective. And sometimes they add antibiotics, and that's an important thing to talk with your doctor about. Uh, whether or not if you're allergic to, say, penicillin or sulfa. And again, we're talking about really small, small doses. When we talk with Gary Winston, who's the toxicologist, and he talks about all of these things, they're, on, they're really on micro levels. It, it, it's not massive doses of things. They're micro particles of levels of things that are not believed to be toxic levels. But that doesn't mean that someone can't get it. Certainly, uh, there are there are companies out there or there are nonprofits that, you know, national vaccine uh, uh, protection agencies that are out there that are looking and talking about, oh, my child got a shot and developed autism. Uh, we certainly hear about those kind of things. Uh, sometimes uh, some of them are correct and some of, sometimes it's the, uh, it's just rumor mills going out there. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have to be careful and you need to look at where your sources are. So that's another important thing. And again, as I get back to it, it's you have to make the decision for yourself, for your family, for people you're taking care of, uh, and for all of humanity to make your decision as to whether or not you need to get the flu shot. Uh, and then you do it, uh, get as much knowledge as you can possibly to get the correct shot and talk with your doctor and make a wise, informed decision and mm. then do what you have to do. Mm. Anything else there? Oh, I think this is, this is a, you know, flu shots, vaccinations. This is a topic that sort of goes on and on. <laughs> and so many questions come up, especially with, you know, parents uh, who are caring for young ones or, or elders. So... That that's always so tricky because you know with so many of the elders too are quite weakened and and um, we've seen some of the effects that you know if just so happen they get that flu shot and they come up with something you know uh, because their immune system is already compromised as you say uh, it's like six of one half a dozen of the other isn't it as you say it's like the risk which one I don't, has more risk I don't think it's six of one and half a dozen I don't think they're equal. I really don't think they're equal. I think that if you take the shot, take the vaccination, and you are compromised, you have a better chance through the flu season than if you didn't take the shot. Mm. So uh, I don't think it's really six of one and a half a dozen. If you are a perfectly healthy person that in your line of work, you're not going to be exposed to people and you're not worried about it then in that case, that might be the person that should maybe think, oh, I don't need the shot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so there are, there are choices to be made, and that's what this topic was about this time, to realize it's a choice, and you should make the choice, and you should consider all the possibilities, your risks, your benefits for yourself, for your family, for people that you care for, and for the rest of humanity, we also need to keep that as part of our decision. Mm. You know, the more nice. people that don't get the flu, the less people will get the flu. The flu that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you have a great point there. Yeah. <laughs> and if you get the flu, stay in. <laughs> stay away from other people if you can, if you can. And if you're a caregiver yes. and you're taking care of someone that is immune compromised or weaker or, you know, they're strong, but they're only four months old. Uh, or they're elderly, then you need to make the decisions about, even if you do take the flu shot, whether you not 
you want to be exposed to them during uh, certain times. Yes, of course. Mm. So Wonderful. I think that's it for that part. And now we may want to go to our other part of the season of The Witch. Oh. Uh, you know, we have a big holiday coming up. Yes, it's it's coming up right like in uh, a couple of days from now. And of course, all us parents and children... Uh, and some elders might be partaking in some wonderful events called Halloween, where all the witches and goblins and ghouls come out to play. And I, I'm wondering if Dr. Woolman is going to share with us uh, some health tips for this time of the season when our kids are getting high on sugar, <laughs> and some of us are as well, um, as well as... Uh, you know, the, the weather out there and what each of us are contending with, depending on which cities we're in. So I am so looking forward to his, uh, his magical mixture. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think that there are many hazards around Halloween that we need to be aware of. And one of these is, you just talked about all the candies and things like that, uh, licorice, black licorice. I this think is we something... have to be aware of strangers at this point. <laughs> uh, that's another issue. Be aware of strangers. We could talk about that. When you're out trick-or-treating, don't, don't take candy from a stranger. Don't go into a stranger's house uh, without, uh, without uh, a parent or someone else with you. But we talk about the black licorice. If kids... Oh. And adults eat too much black licorice, and that could be, you know, a dose of, I would say, two ounces a day for two weeks. And sometimes that happens when kids have so much candy, they hide it, and they're eating it for weeks at a time. Black licorice has a product in it called glycerazinic acid, which affects the sodium and potassium in your body, and it can change your heart rhythm. So it's very important to be aware of not taking too much licorice. So, so before you go on, is this part of your health tip? Uh, everything I do is part of my health tip. Oh, so we don't have one specific health tip? No, not at all. This okay, whole... well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to announce to go, okay, this is, we're speaking right now on Magical Medical Tour with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and he's going to share with us some wonderful Halloween health tips. Halloween health tips. There you go. Uh, you're right. I apologize for not giving the appropriate introduction. Uh, a few other things to think about. Contact lenses. You know, a lot of kids are putting on uh, contact lenses that make their eyes look serpentine or uh, more like a cat or something like that. This could be very dangerous, so you need to be very careful. And I would not do this without the... Uh, without consulting with an eye doctor, because the lenses are certainly not of the quality that people wear contact lenses. You can get very severe eye infections. A uh, number of problems can occur. Tears in the uh, retina, cornea, more the cornea, not the retina. But uh, So be very careful with these contact lenses. Also, makeup. If kids are planning on putting a lot of makeup on, I would make sure of what's in the makeup. You don't want lead in it, clearly. But you also should consider doing a test with your child. If you're going to put makeup all over their face, take a little makeup about a week or two before of the same makeup and put it on an arm or on their back or something and see if a reaction occurs uh, from this. It can cause serious damage to the skin with big infections. Uh, we also want to look at costumes that people are wearing. If they're too dark and people are out at night, they may not be seen. If they're too long, uh, children may trip over them and hurt themselves. And uh, certainly we don't want any of the flammable materials that uh, some of the costumes are made with. Not as much anymore. I think they're pretty careful now, but you always have to be careful of that. Uh, so if you're going to send your kid out in a dark cape that's really long, you should have it pulled up and reflective tape should maybe be over it. Also, if someone is putting on a mask, you should make sure that that mask of the child doesn't slide and slip around and obscure their vision where they could walk into something abnormal, especially something like a, uh, a pumpkin that has a candle in it, if you can imagine that. And speaking of pumpkins, I, I think depending on the age of the child, you should maybe 
uh, not have the child do the carving, but maybe they could take a magic marker and draw the design and let the adult do the carving. And when they get old enough, certainly you can do it under supervision. But I would also be very careful about uh, uh, candles inside of a pumpkin. You have to be very careful making sure it's stable and not around any other uh, materials that's flammable. Uh, the candy itself, I would always, as a parent, I would examine and inspect all the candy, make sure the candy is comes from uh, a legitimate uh, manufacturer and the wrapping is still on it. Anything that's loose or that is not wrapped, I would be very leery of. And you also obviously want to beware of candy overload in kids. So once they come home, you should probably... <coughs> gather up the candy, and then disperse it over a period of time. Swords and knives are important to be careful with. Don't make them too long or too sharp. Don't go alone. And uh, I think that um, the other final thing would be looking at lead-filled products, like skulls, drinking cups, and some of the teeth that people put in their mouths. They may have lead in them. I might be allergic to this uh, (coughs) costume that I'm wearing. So that would be it for me. And right now I'm not hearing anybody. Oh, that's, uh, uh, we, we just, uh, um, uh, we just had you floating among some things <laughs> in a strange know. place, the stranger in the strange place. <laughs> Do I need to repeat anything? Well, you know, what I'd like you to repeat is about black licorice. Now, does this also, I mean, there are there are different kinds of licorice. Now, they have the ones that are supposed to be all natural with no artificial flavorings and colors, etc., that are made yeah. from fruit juices, etc. And then they have another brand that I've, of course, that I buy, which is like the Panda brand that is made of molasses and, you know, it, it's... It, it's very basic. It's like four ingredients. So does that fall under what you're talking about in black licorice? If it has glycerizin, glycerizin in it, glycerizinic acid, if it has Glyc- that in it, okay. Okay. This, that's what you need to know. And if it has that in it and you have a piece of licorice, it's not a problem. Okay. If and, you have and a that's lot not in red licorice. licorice? Uh, if it, if it's licorice, you know, if it's licorice, we talk about black licorice because that's the main licorice. Uh, but you have to check to see if it's in the red or any of the other colored licorice. I don't know what the Latin plural of licorice is. Is it licorice? This is not found in native like licorice root. Yes, it is. Licorice root. Like if you were to just chew on a root. Yes. Yes. Oh. It's also in that. Yes. The glycerizinic acid is in that. It's part of the natural part of the licorice. This isn't one of the manufacturing preservatives or dyes or anything else this is part of the licorice root itself oh that's really interesting because you know a lot of the indigenous cultures they chew on licorice root yes and and licorice is good and we love licorice and licorice uh you know we have licorice teas and everything else Mm. and it does many good things for people especially uh it's very good in healing of sore throats etc but what we're talking about is a large quantity of uh, the licorice because when that acid builds up, that glycerizinic acid, if you take one bit, there's such a small amount. It's just almost like when we talked about the mercury that we worry mm-hmm. about or the lead or the arsenic. If it's in a small amount, our body can deal with it. It's when you take a large amount and the, they've estimated that it's about two ounces over a t- every day for a two-week period, <clears throat> the equivalent of that would have the potential to change the sodium and the potassium in your body to levels that would make the heart beat irregularly. Mm-hmm. And remember our talk on the irregular, irregular, mm-hmm. irregular heartbeat that you <laughs> yeah. had to try and remember when we talked about vital signs? Yes, yes. Well, the heart can go into a dysrhythmia, an irregular dysrhythmia, which would uh, potentially be fatal. Mm, interesting. So be careful of black licorice. Mm, okay. Very interesting. Wow. But two ounces of that acid. 
Yeah. Well, two ounces of the licorice, you know, depending on how much of the acid is in there. I, I, I'm not sure the actual dose of the acid that's within the two ounces that we could certainly figure it out. And we could actually come up with the number of how much of the acid, but nobody takes the acid. Everybody drinks Eats the Kool-Aid <laughs> <laughs> or eats the licorice. Oh my gosh, that's very interesting. I wonder how they found that one out. <laughs> yeah. Someone well, got high on licorice and just... Well, <laughs> yep, that's the science. Wow, amazing. We always have to... So today, it was the season of the witch. Which path should you take in terms of a uh, vaccination for the flu and being careful of the hazards of Halloween? <laughs> which is my with favorite our holiday stranger yes yes we have a stranger i have a stranger with me <laughs> what did you do with dr glenn woolman <laughs> right it's the new, we may have to ma- rename the show this is my this is my health tip don't wear this uh costume <laughs> while doing you're a allergic show. to it <laughs> don't, don't wear a costume while doing a show that's my health tip for today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, our wonderful medical guide, for sharing with us on the different paths that we can take and which to choose. And of course, thank you, Segovia Smith and the Yoga Hub team for making this possible. And to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter, at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Again, we are always grateful for any feedback and support uh, and suggestions, of course. Please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation, and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.